Praise the Lord. What a great time of worship. Thank you so much for that, Sarah, just for allowing the spirit to, to lead through you. That was wonderful. Yeah, it was a blessing. Um, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah, book, Isaiah 55. It's almost in the middle of your Bible. Um, not quite, but it's, it's on nine, page 985 in my Bible. But, uh, Pastor Bob and Barb have uh, jaunted down to Mexico for just a really quick uh, uh, setup uh, meeting down because the um, um, Mission Mexico trip is going to happen in April, and so they're they're the advanced team going down and getting some more information, meeting with Jeff and uh, and some of the other uh, team members down there. And uh, so they'll be back tomorrow. So it's just a real quick fly down, have a quick meeting, and then fly back. So, so, um, so we want to obviously keep them in prayer as well. Uh, so uh, let's uh, let's. I would like to do. I'd like to read the, the chapter, um, and then we'll pray, and then we'll lift up these things. And so it's only thirteen verses. Uh, so. I think it's it's good for us to read it, um, and then we'll we'll pray, and then we'll we'll get going on this. So, Isaiah fifty-five: Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and let your soul delight in it in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the, first, the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, said the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree. And instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We just uh, look to you tonight, Lord. 
to bring forth, Lord, those things that you would have us to meditate upon, Lord, those things that you would have us to think about, Lord. And uh, we do lift up our pastor and, and, for, and Barb. We pray your hand be upon them as they're traveling, Lord. We pray, Lord, that the meeting and, and the information gathering would be very fruitful, Lord, and that you would bring them home safely, Lord. Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer. We love you so much, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. As we read, read that, how many were listening and, and going, oh, I know that. I know that passage. I know that. There's so many things that we, that we, we quote. There are songs that are out of that, from there. And um, it's a wonderful wonderful passage, wonderful chapter. Um, this is an invitation to abundant life. Um, Harry Ironside said this, and I, and I chose, I was reading this to Teresa, I said, I want to start with this quote because it's so good. He says, if it were not for the truth set forth in chapter 53 of Isaiah. Now, those, you, you remember chapter 53, that deals about the suffering servant. Um, Later tonight, if you know, refresh, it's good to, to remind yourself of all that the suffering servant did for us. But he triumphed on the cross. Um, but he, Ironside uh, said this, that there were, if it wasn't for the truths of that, there would be no possibility of this gracious invitation. Throughout this entire section of Isaiah, from chapters 49 through 57, God is presenting his chosen servant, our Lord Jesus Christ, as the redeemer of Israel and of the world, whose rejection at his first coming was foreknown and plainly predicted, but who for, by his propitiatory work, his atoning sacrifice, was to open up the way for guilty sinners to find peace with God and pardon for all their transgressions. And because of his work, God can send forth the gracious invitation for all men everywhere to partake of his salvation. Isaiah has been called the evangelical prophet, and he well deserves to be so designated. For nowhere else in the Old Testament is the person and work of our Lord set forth so clearly and fully as in this wonderful book. Man is shown to be utterly bankrupt, spiritually destitute of righteousness and with no claim upon God whatsoever. Yet Christ, Jehovah's sinless servant, is presented as the great sin offering through whose infinite sacrifice all who come to him in faith will be justified in his sight. His salvation is based upon righteousness and in the cross the sin question has been settled in a righteous way and so God can now save all who come to him in faith little bit long wordy uh, quote there, but I think it succinctly says the gospel is presented here in a way that, you know, so often we'll look to, you know, well, well maybe not you, because we, we are students of the Bible. We read the Bible. We've come to know that God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever, and, and we see that his dealings with man were in a consistent way throughout the Old Testament. And I remember before becoming a believer, uh, when I was first, uh, uh, first on the path, so to speak, um, 
thinking, well, how can the God of the Old Testament be the same as the God of the New Testament? I felt that God was judging and, and, and angry at me all the time, and Jesus was the nice one, that, oh, I could go to Jesus. You know, anybody else have that feeling at first? You know, I, I did. I just felt like I, I didn't know God. I was scared of God. And yet, that's precisely why God came down in the form of a man to show us our need of a savior. Uh, I heard a, uh, Joe Foe share a little illustration um, about, you know, if we, if, we, if we saw a group, a, a colony of ants that we really cared about, that's the first thing, well, I don't know, I care about ants, but, um, and we saw that this big water tank was gonna fall over and it was gonna wipe out the colony and we wanted to save them. There's nothing that we could do to communicate to them, hey, there's, there, you're going to be wiped out. You better move. Um, but if we could become an ant, and that's, you know, uh, the distance that, that God came in the form of a man to reach us is far greater than the distance that it would take us to become an ant to warn them. Um, but the beauty of it is that God, just as my parents um, trained me and in, in, uh, in, as I grew, they, they allowed me uh, at various times um, to learn, you know, they, they, didn't, they didn't come all the way up, you know, when I'm, when I'm one years old, say, well, now it's time to make your bed and clean your room, you know. No, it was, it was a progressive thing. They taught me step by step. And God was, has been dealing with man in that way from the beginning step by step showing that he is a righteous holy God he is a just God but that his ways are not our ways and we see through through the the, the corridor of time now we're at this point and we see all that God has done through the nation Israel to bring and prepare the world for the ultimate Savior that was going to fulfill all righteousness that was going to fulfill the law and that we who are sinful and unable to uh, to keep the law could by faith be receivers of his grace and thereby thus walk in that newness of life having fulfilled the law vicariously through Christ's atonement and so beautiful and Isaiah is is one of those prophets that um, just seemed to have that heart that God just poured through so much um, Chapters 54 through 57 in this book look forward from the work of Christ in chapter 53. It was written to Israel during their time of Babylonian exile, and these words would offer comfort and hope to them. This nation was experiencing the Lord's judgment due to their hard and rebellious hearts. They speak of the great salvation which will come to Israel. You'll see that in chapter 54 and then to proselytes, to those that would come and, and join themselves to Israel. We'll see that in chapters 55 and 56 on the basis of the work of the servant and on the condemnation which will come to the wicked. And you see that from 56 through 57 to the end of those. So ultimately, the servant will establish the millennial kingdom that Jesus is going to set up his throne. He's going to rule and reign. But unlike Israel who failed in their mission, 
Jesus is not going to fail. He's already conquered. The servant died not only for the sins of Israel, but also for the sins of the whole world. You remember what John said to, uh, to Peter and James? There in the book of John, chapter 1, it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of Israel. Is that what he said? No, he said, he takes away the sins of the world. That was, that was a, a new thought at that time. Not to the gospel writers, not to the Bible, not to the Holy Spirit, because God was foretelling for centuries that that Jesus was going or that that he was going to reach all the nations. First John chapter 4, 14 and 15, it says, We've seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So Isaiah is going to make it clear throughout his book that the Gentiles are included in God's plan. What Isaiah and the other prophets did not know was that believing Jews and Gentiles would one day be united into one body, into the church. And we'll see that you can see that in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 3. Um, Paul writes about that, about God has taken and we've made one, one body, the bride of Christ. And through Isaiah, God gives us a threefold invitation to the Gentiles. We'll look at two of them tonight. Isaiah 55, 1 through 5, the invitation is to come. In verses 6 through 13, the invitation is to seek. And we won't have time to get there, and, but chapters 56, 1 through 8, the invitation is to worship. Come and to seek and to worship. And so we see this universal invitation in verse 1. Verses 1 and 2, it says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. So the prophet is calling out, Ho! It's like we might say today, Yo! Um, I don't know if Dee's watching now, but, you know, we talked to Dee. She goes, yo, dude. You know, we might say something like that today. And, you know, he's trying to get attention. This is, this is a new thing. This is an important announcement, and therefore it's prefaced by this unique call. Now, this word is interesting. I looked it up in the Hebrew. This word is translated only twice, ho, in the King James Version, many times it's translated woe. Uh, it's a word of warning. It's also a word of calling. And the context determines whether it's going to be a warning or whether it's going to be an invitation. And this is clearly an invitation. Spurgeon said this, Ho, this is the gospel note, a short, significant appeal urging you to be wise enough to attend to your own interests, Oh, the condensation, ah, I have trouble with this word. Oh, the conden, condescension, thank you, Charlie. The condescension of God that he should, as it were, become a beggar to his own creature. 
and stoop from the magnificent of his glory to cry, Ho, to foolish and ungrateful men. It's a message directed to the Jews, but will ultimately be open to all, Gentiles as well. G. Campbell Morgan said this, that the description is not of material things, but of spiritual, is evidenced by the fact that whereas the people are described as without money, it's nevertheless declared that they're spending money for that which is not bread. The message is to a people who have turned their back upon their own spiritual birthright, who are attempting to satisfy themselves with the things of the dust, and who are proving that the money they possess is not current in the realm whence the true water of life and the bread of the Spirit are to be obtained. I mean, and isn't that an apt picture of what we see today? People spending their money, spending their time, spending their energy, giving their hearts over to things that they hope and they think might satisfy, but in the end, it's just dust. There's no spiritual food, and yet that's really what they're craving. So the invitation is extended to everyone, not just to the Jews, but there is a qualification. The invitation goes out, but it's only for the what? For the thirsty. For those who are thirsty. Anyone who is thirsting for that which really satisfied is welcome to come. There's a qualification to this. The invitation, you remember Jesus, John chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. Jesus talking to the woman at the well there in Sychar. And, and, you know, the whole encounter there, you know, um, and he says, give me, give me a drink. And, uh, you know, she says, well, you know, you know, you don't have anything to draw from, you know. And he goes, look, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me. And I'd give you living water. And this is, this is. This is where we're picking it up in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, what a gift he is, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. We drink from Jesus, the true fountain of life, and we're satisfied. No wonder Paul the Apostle could say that, that he'd learned the secret to being content in any of every situation. Because he was drinking from the spiritual fountain of Jesus. John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. These are promises that were fulfilled in Christ that are there for us today. In John 7.37 through 38, where Jesus, it's, it's the last great day of the Feast of the Tabernacles, and, and uh, Jesus stands and he cries out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And it, Jesus may have had this passage in mind. He quoted from the book of Isaiah many times. It's an invitation to everyone 
but to everyone who thirsts. You know, you can, what's the old saying? You know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. It's the same with the gospel message. You can share the gospel. You can, you can share the water of life with them, but you can't make them drink. It has to be a choice. It has to be that one. Only those who thirst will come to the water. If we aren't thirsty for what the Lord can give us, then we're never going to come to his waters. Isaiah says, come, satisfy your thirst and buy wine, milk, and bread. Wine, milk, and bread were staples of their diet. In the East, water was a precious ingredient. An abundance of water was a special blessing. And, and earlier, God had told uh, Isaiah to comfort the people with these words in Isaiah 41:17, God said, the poor and needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. And then a few chapters later, Isaiah 44, 2 and 3. It says, Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, in whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessings on your offspring. The people were living on spiritual substitutes that did not nourish them. They needed the real thing, which only the Lord could give. You know, in scripture, both water and wine are pictures of the Holy Spirit. We don't have time to go into to all of the different verses. We looked at 1 John 7, 37 through 39, but Ephesians 5, 18 talks about that as well, if you're making notes. Uh, Jesus being the bread of life. We looked at that at John 6, 32 through 35. And his living word is like milk. 1 Peter 2, 2. Crave the pure milk of the word. Our Lord probably had Isaiah 55, 2 in mind when he said, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but the food that endures to everlasting life. John 6, 27. You know, the problem that so often what the Jews were doing is they were looking at these things in a literal wooden sense and saying, you know, all right, we're thirsty, Lord, give us water. And he was saying, no, the water I'm going to give you is spiritual. He would meet their needs. We're going through numbers of the home fellowship, and uh, um, it's been interesting to see that. And my wife and I, we're going through um, uh, Exodus right now, too, and so... We're just seeing the people just, they, they're not getting it. Um, it's like, Lord, help us to get it. The old Scottish preacher McLaren said this, Water revives, wine gladdens, and in spirits, milk nourishes. All that any man needs or desires to be, uh, desires is to be found in Christ. We shall not understand the nature of the feast unless we remember that he himself is the gift of God. What these three droughts mean is best perceived when we listen to him saying, in a plain quotation of this call, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Nothing short of himself can satisfy the thirst of one soul, much less of all the thirsty. Like the flow from the magic fountain of the legend, Jesus becomes to each what each most desires. It's kind of weird the way he ended that, but I'm thinking of the fountain of youth, the, some of the mythical things. You know, and I, I know there's a Scottish legend of this mythical fountain. Um, 
but we don't have a mythical fountain. We have a true fountain, the fountain of life. He says, you who have no money, come buy and eat. So the price is absolutely free. Those who do thirst and answer the Lord's invitation don't need to bring money. Their money won't really do them any good, right? In a spiritual sense, they can simply bring their trust and their faith and receive what God has to give them. See, God invites people in need to come. By coming, we indicate that we're trusting in and relying on him for salvation. And we're agreeing to obey his commands. Lord, I want to surrender to you. We sang several songs. that the, I know my sister read the passage. I told her ahead of time. And did a great job fixing these songs just as the Lord just led you to pick them. That just you know, drew, drew, drew us to that place. See, the blessing God gives, we know they're available at no cost. It's a free gift of God. Whether it refers to spiritual redemption or physical deliverance in this context, and it's probably both are intended here, God has the free gift that we need. He has everything. First Peter, Peter writes that God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And it's through that knowledge that he's given us that he's here. Again, McLaren, he says, who are invited? There are but two conditions expressed in Isaiah 55.1, and these are fulfilled in every soul. All are summoned who are thirsty and penniless. I fit that. If we have in our souls desires that all the broken cisterns of earth can never slake, that means to satisfy us, and we have all these, and if we have nothing by which we can procure what we still the gnawing hunger and burning thirst of our souls, and none of us has, then we are included in the call. Universal as are the cravings for blessedness and the powerlessness to satisfy it are the adaption at, and destination of the gospel. We have nothing. We have no money. There's nothing that we can do to produce and something that will satisfy it. You can put all the works of, uh, uh, you know, do all the good works. You could have all the money in the world. You could have all the power in the world, and it still will not satisfy. We don't have the time to go through, but Pastor Bob has shared some of the testimonies of these people that were wealthy and, uh, and their dying statements on their deathbed, and how they felt empty and lost, many of them take, taking their own lives. Barnes said this, the poor, they, who, they would, who would be unable to purchase salvation if it were to be sold, the idea here is the absolute freeness of the author, offer of salvation. No man can excuse himself for not being a Christian because he's poor. And no man who is rich can ever boast that he's bought salvation or that he's obtained it on more easy terms because he had property. You know, God levels the playing field, all of us. Romans talks about that. God has, has made us all, you know, we're, we're all sinners. We're all on that, that same playing ground. But that he might show mercy to all. Ah, it's a long quote, but um, I think it's fruitful. Uh, Matthew Henry, on buying 
Our buying without money intimates, number one, that the gifts offered us are invaluable and such as no price can be set upon. It's invaluable what God offers us. Wisdom is that which cannot be gotten for gold. Number two, that he who offers them has no need of us nor of any returns we can make. God doesn't need anything from us. He's totally self-sufficient. He makes us these proposals, not because he's trying to sell us something, but because he has a disposition to give. He wants to give. And number three, the things that offered are already bought and paid for. Christ purchased them at the full value with price, not with money, but with his own blood. 1 Peter 1.19 and number four, that we shall be welcome to the benefits of the promise, though we are utterly unworthy of them and cannot make a tender of anything that looks like a valuable consideration. There's nothing that we can say, Lord, I, I did this. This was good enough. There's nothing. We all fall short. We ourselves are not of any value, nor is there anything we can or that we have or, or that we can do or, or that we, we, we can offer. We see ourselves forever indebted to grace. And I think that's the best picture. Why did God do this? We're told it's for love. It's out of love for us. He was moved with compassion for his love. So the appeal is, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what doesn't satisfy in his invitation, the Lord asked people how they could be interested in other things beside himself, as he's the only one who can bring genuine satisfaction. You know, this is a remarkably relevant question to our day. You know, people running around, trying to fill, you know, uh, that emptiness, only to go through that time, and then comes the Monday morning, and they're back at work, and then another weekend to look forward to. We're going to do all the things we can pour our time and our money and our effort into are things that will never satisfy the way the Lord can satisfy. So a relevant question to ask for ourselves. What do I spend my money, time, and attention on that can never satisfy? It's good to to do a self-evaluation every once in a while to say, Lord, I put a lot of time and effort into this. Is there a better thing I could be pouring my heart into? Again, I'm just going to let that hang there. You let the Lord deal with that as, as he would. But you know, throughout all history, people have tried to find satisfaction in so many things other than God, and they're still trying it. The Lord says through this, listen carefully to me and eat what is good. We're trying to eat better. Um, I heard, I heard uh, one guy, I don't think it was a Christian. Um, uh, no, it wasn't a Christian. It was on the radio coming home. But he says, the older we get, the more we're trying to eat better so that we can get older. <laughs> I, I, I don't know that I want to be older. I'm not, you know, I'm... But I want to live as healthy as I can, to be as useful to the Lord, to the whatever time that he has left. And so, so we're eating better now. We're making better choices than we did 10 years ago, 20 years ago. 
Again, Barnes says the idea is that by attending to his words and embracing his offer, that they would find that without money or price, which they were vainly seeking at so much expense and with so much toil, they were invited to partake of that which would nourish the soul and which would fill it with joy. So the invitation to those who were thirsty, to those that would come, to those that had no money, the invitation is, and then he says, listen carefully. He's going to repeat this listen in, a, in, a, in the next verse, but eat what is good. And then he says, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. In the King James, it's fatness. King, uh, abundance is fatness. And in fatness in the scripture is used to, to denote the richest food. And so it's emblem, emblematic of the rich and the abundant blessings re resulting from favor of God. There's several uh, passages that, that we could look, but just, here's just a few. Psalm 36, 7 through 9 says, How precious is your loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. And then Psalm 63, 1 through 5. O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there's no water. So I've looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name, and my soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. This is what God's inviting us to, abundant life. Jesus said in John 10:10, 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. But it's found for those who are thirsty. In the, in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. It's in coming to him. It's in recognizing our need that he satisfies us. Verse 3. It took a long time to get one and two. We go quicker through the rest of it, I promise you. Verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. So he, incline your ear. Come to me. It's calling for spiritually to tune in. Tuning into God. Tuning into his words. Dave Guzik said this in his commentary. He says, the thought carries over from the idea of letting your soul delight itself in abundance. Whoever will genuinely feast off the word must consciously incline their ear towards what God will say. This explains why two people can listen to the same message and one benefit and the other not. Often the one who did not benefit simply did not incline their ear to the Lord. The benefit from inclining your ear to God is impressive, and when we do it, we have life for our soul. Think about the many times you've gathered, we've come on a Sunday morning and the word is going out and, and you're just like, whoa, I'm, this, that's a great, oh God just spoke to my heart. And, and you talk to somebody, oh yeah, it was a good message. And you're going, did you not hear the message? You know? And, and it, it may be that God had a message for you in that that struck you, but it may be they weren't tuned in. 
And maybe we have times where we don't tune in. I know there's times where I get distracted and I'm thinking about something else that I have to do, a conversation that maybe I'm not looking forward to having or, or something, and it'll weigh on my heart. And, and the enemy will use that. And I don't want to give, like, Pastor, I don't want to give the chump too much credit. Sometimes it's just my own flesh. I just can't let it go to just to be able to sit and receive. By coming to the Lord, people will have life and the benefits of God's everlasting covenant with David. This is what Lord prom- the Lord promised that David line would, his, would continue forever. Uh, the sure mercies of David involves God covenant, God's covenant with David. Second uh, Samuel seven, you see God relaying that to Jesus uh, to David, excuse me, in which He promises that a descendant would reign on His throne forever. And of course, this is picturing Jesus Christ. The proof that He is God's King is seen in His resurrection from the dead. Uh, Acts 13, 34 through 39. And Jesus Christ is God's covenant to the Gentiles, and his promises will stand as long as his son lives, which is forever. And so, so here, even back here, there's that, that picture that David would be that one that would, would have that line go forever. It's interesting. I don't know if you were with us. Uh, many of you were. Most of probably uh, when Pastor Bob going through the book of Ezekiel, um, and at the end, and he says there's there's some evidence and some scholars that believe that David himself will reign with Christ in Jerusalem, and I believe that. Um, this is a picture of that. This is a picture of the new covenant that we see talked about in Jeremiah 32 and in Hebrews chapter 13. This points to that Davidic covenant that is going to last forever. And just as God promised to keep his good hand on David, so he assures those who come to him that he will never remove his good hand, his good hand being his blessings. He will always be with them and consider them his people. Indeed, verse 4, I have given him, speaking of David, as a witness to the people, but also speaks of that servant that to come, Jesus. There's a twofold picture here of David and of Christ. I've given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you because the Lord because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. See, God promises the blessing of good and wise leadership as part of his sure mercies. And man, don't we have a wonderful, wonderful uh, giver of truth. Jesus is the truth, and his leadership is perfect. And just as Dave, Dave, now David wasn't a perfect man by any stretch, But David was a witness in the sense that he had a real relationship with God. A real experience with God. And he could speak to Israel as a witness of what he had seen and heard in that relationship with God. Notice that David was a witness to the people. A witness to, not of the people. David didn't lead through popularity polls. Or he didn't just give the people what they wanted. He witnessed something from God and he gave testimony of it to the people. 
So he sought the Lord. No wonder God said, I've chosen a man after my own heart. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know. God will use Israel to call the Gentiles to salvation. This is what they were supposed to do in the beginning. They were supposed to be a light. God had made it so that the Gentiles could come and be part of his kingdom. But they rejected that idea and they kept it to themselves. But this will definitely be true during the kingdom. We saw this pattern in the early days of the church, right? Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11, verse 19, Acts chapter 13. You see the the gospel beginning in the church, the the evangelists, the apostles, they would go and they would begin in the synagogues and they would teach there and from there then it would spread out. This is going to be true during the kingdom age too where Jerusalem's going to be the center for worship in the world. God's going to be glorified as all the nations meet together with Israel to honor the Lord. Isaiah 2, right at the beginning, chapter 2, verses 2, it says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. There's other verses. I won't read them, but Isaiah 45, 14 talks about how, how they're going to walk behind. They're going to come, even though they may be, be in chains, they're going to come and make supplication to the Lord. In Zechariah 8, uh, 20 through 22, it says, Thus says the Lord, people shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitant of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will also go. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before God. We haven't seen that happen yet, but it's going to happen. It's a promise to what's going to, what we have to look forward to in the, in the millennial kingdom. And so that, that plea now comes in verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. There's two things implied here. Did you catch them? Number one, that God may be found now. Seek the Lord now while he may be found. And number two, that the time will come Well, when it will be impossible to obtain his favor. Sinners are urged to seek the Lord now before it's too late. The prophet impresses a sense of urgency on God's people. It says, this is the time. God can be found now. Seek him now. We're in that period of time where people can still seek and praise God because we all found the Lord during this time. But there's a time yet to come where it will be too late. It's important to remember, too, that it isn't that God is hidden and can only be found now. It's that he can only be found when our hearts are inclined to look for him. I love that, that uh, 
saying it came, became popular years ago during Christmas time, and you'll still see it on Christmas cards. You know, wise men still seek him. We must receive the gift and make the most of it while we have it. Not seeking and failing to call upon him while he is near means we won't receive the blessings that he promises. So what's involved in seeking the Lord? I mean, we're all here. We are all, we all know, but maybe somebody's watching this. It means admitting that we are sinners and we've offended the holy God. It means repenting. We see that in verse 7. Changing one's mind about sin, turning away from sin into the Lord. We must turn to God in faith and believe his promise that in mercy he will abundantly pardon. See, repentance and faith go together. Repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 20, 21. What a glorious promise that when we turn to the Lord, he will have mercy on us. He will abundantly pardon the problem is that uh, it's never that we turn to the Lord and find that he rejects us. The problem is that so often we fail to return to the Lord. How often do we find ourselves in that place where, you know, and hopefully less and less. Like Pastor Bob, it's not that we, we become sinless. It's just that as we grow with the Lord, we sin less. Do we come to the Lord? I love 1 John 1, 9. If we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But do we come? Will we come to him and say, Lord, I blow it? (laughs) Keep short accounts. There is that implied warning here. While he may be found, there's an expiration date to this office, to this offer, excuse me, Um, Again, Matthew Henry, I think he sums things up so well. He says, number one, it's implied that now God is near and will be found, so it shall not be in vain to seek him and to call upon him. Now his patience is waiting for us. It's waiting on us, really. His word is calling to us and his spirit is striving with us. Let us now improve our advantages and opportunity, for now is the accepted time. But, number two, there is a day coming when he will be afar off and will not be found, when the day of his patience is over and his spirit will strive no more. There may come such a time in this life when the heart is incurably hardened, just as it was with Pharaoh. It is certain that at death and judgment the door will be shut. Luke 16, 26 has that picture of the door being shut. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2 says, We then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And Hebrews 4, 7, quoting from Psalm 95, 7, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The invitation is out. The offer is there. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. Praise God. I add, that's my own add-on. Huh? Uh, 
says the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's thoughts and ways are not our thoughts and ways. And I am so grateful for so many times I've been guilty of what Pastor Bob calls stinking thinking. You know, my thoughts and I just start going down this path and, um, and it just leads to the slew of despond. It leads to you know, just... Just no good. But see, God can show compassion on those who turn to him because his thoughts and ways are far superior to our ways. Man's thoughts and ways, we're evil. I mean, we're just like in the days of, of Noah. Men's hearts you know, are evil continually. We're, we're, we're thinking, you know, it's only by the grace of God. And you think it's bad in this world. Now, wait until the rapture come when the church is removed and the Holy Spirit's that, that empowers the church is taken out of the way, you're going to see evil really run rampant. Aren't you glad that God doesn't think the way that we do? Man, we get into a lot of trouble when we expect that he should think as we do. Because we're made in the image of God, we can relate to God's thoughts, but we can't master them. You know? we, we can relate, but we, we don't have them. He does things his way, and his ways are often not our ways. <laughs> More often than, than not, they are not our ways. How far is the distance between God's thoughts and ours? How far is the distance between his ways and ours? Yeah. The distance is as great as the heavens are higher than the earth. That's the picture that's painted here. Spurgeon said this, the, distance, the difference in distance between God and man is revealed, not to discourage us from seeking him, but to keep us humble as we seek him. You may conclude that it is not intended that you should understand the infinite, for you're told that his thoughts and ways are far above you, but you're required to seek him while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. One more quote here. David Guzik says, Gloriously in Jesus Christ, heaven has come down to earth, and we can have our thoughts and ways transformed to be more like God's thoughts and ways. This is what it means to be conformed to the image of His Son. Romans eight twenty nine talks about that. That you know we know you know God, God uh, uh, is transforming us. We um, uh, uh, he's, he's renewing us. He's he's. He has a purpose that he's working all these things together in order that we might be transformed to be more like him, to be more like Jesus. The distance will never be closed. God will always be God and we'll always be human. But when our salvation is complete and we're united with the Lord in glory, the distance will be as close as is possible. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Now I know in part. But then I shall know fully. Yep. Thank you. Even as I am fully known. Fully. We see but through a glass darkly or a dim reflection, a poor reflection in a mirror. But then we're going to see face to face. For as the rain comes down, now he's going to go with a different illustration. A natural illustration regards to the word of God. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven... And do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. 
It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God's weather, rain comes down from heaven to produce food for people's bodies. God's word, God's word comes down from heaven to produce food for people's souls. The hearts of men by nature of what the earth would be without the rains of heaven, barren and sterile. But God says that his truth shall certainly accomplish an effect similar to the, that produced by the descending showers. The rain never descends in vain. It makes the earth fertile, beautiful and lovely. So it would be with his truth in the moral world. It brings forth and buds. It gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater. And God brings that fruit in our life that has so many different applications. The same grain that gives seed to the sower also gives bread to the eater. And the same word that comes and feeds our soul, that waters our soul, gives that slakes. I like that word. I learned that word during studying the slakes. Satisfies our, our thirst. Satisfies our hunger. And God says, it's going to accomplish what I please. Not what you want, necessarily. But it's going to satisfy what he wants to do. It accomplishes what he wants it to do. When I was a kid, I had very little input on what we were going to have for dinner. But I knew that it was always going to be healthy, and it was, well, for the most part. Um, uh, but I knew that it was going to be what I needed. Um, God's word is the same way. It may not be always what we want, but it's always what we need. And God doesn't just speak to hear himself talk. His word's not empty or lacking in power. It has a purpose. He didn't speak in unfathomable mysteries just to blow our minds. Oh, I'm going to tell you something really crazy. Oh, yeah. No, he didn't do it to confuse us either or leave things up to any possible interpretation. God speaks very clear to accomplish a purpose in our life. And he says it's going to prosper in the thing for which I sent it. The very thing. The very thing that God wants to do in us is to produce an abundant, fruitful life for his kingdom. Rich and full life. God's word always succeeds and always fulfills God's purpose. We have two more verses and we'll wrap it up here. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorns shall come up the cypress tree. And instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. For you shall go out with joy. When God's people turn to him, listen to him and his word, it does, his, does its work in us. Joy and peace are always the result. There's always fruit that comes. And the joy is so great 
Isaiah says that even the mountains and the hills and the trees and the field, they're going to kick in and go, yeah, amen. It's like Jesus, you know, on that day, you know, uh, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna. You know, he says if those voices were stilled, the very rocks would cry out. One day I think we're going to hear rocks cry out. I think we're going to see, see all of creation just rejoice when Jesus comes and makes all things right. When the new heavens and the new earth. Where before there was barrenness and reminders of the curse, now there's beautiful and useful trees. The picture is clear. In his glorious work of restoration, God takes away the barren and the cursed and brings forth beauty and fruit. So what is this? How do we apply this? So, so we, we hear this, we come, you know, we've come to the table. What, what, you know, we know this is the message that we need to get, bring out. You know, come, seek the Lord. How do we do that? How do we create thirst in other people? We, we create thirst by partaking, by drinking deep of the water of life, by pouring his word into our hearts and life and becoming salt and light in the world. And as we interact with people, we just share the love that is going to pour out. We just share the word that's going to pour out. And it creates a thirst. Then we get opportunity to share. And, and I just think the Lord is going to be glorified. When the Lord restores, all the work is done for his name and for his glory. When the Lord restores, the work is secure. It's an everlasting sign that's not going to be cut off. And so we see that in our lives. We see fruit that has come. And may we see that as we go out in this world and have the message, come, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon his name. Make, make, make known his, his, his deeds to be glorious, as it says in the Psalms. Amen? And Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thirst, Lord, create in us a deeper thirst for your word, a, a deeper thirst for the things of God. Lord, that we would not be satisfied on anything else. Lord, uh, Lord, we, we sing that song, um, you know, uh, turn our eyes upon Jesus. Look full in, in his wonderful face. And the things of earth shall grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Lord, may we look fuller into your, your face, Lord. May we seek you with a whole heart, Lord. May we not uh, hold back from coming and drinking and receiving. And Lord, use us, Lord, in these last days to bring you glory. It's in Jesus' name that everybody prays. Amen. All right. God bless you. Have a good evening. Safe trip home. Amen. Thank you.
Okay, okay. Yeah, let me go because I know we have some Bibles in the other room and uh, her Bibles disappeared. And so, along with a whole bunch of stuff, huh? Let me go grab a Bible.